everyone it's been a while no once again i always say it's been a while i keep on (laughs) what it 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 gives us the impression that we don't talk to each other (laughs) except except for recording sessions which might be true yeah i was like that's that's pretty accurate it certainly has been recently for me i saw jared in person for like a hot minute but otherwise yeah it's the show currently this makes me feel this makes me feel really sad because this also means that now that we're in part two of our book our time together joe is slowly but surely evaporating you're just gonna have to have me on for the next book Mahar. You only want Jared me for my book choices. Books and you know, <laughs> you might not want to be here if we end up going with Therapy Quest. No. We no, 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 no. <laughs> no, let's not go there yet. Okay, let's not. Ayah, que horror. Okay, anyway, anyway, anyway. Welcome to Trying to Be Kind. It's a podcast that looks at academic texts that concern themselves with RPGs as investigated by other people who use academic lenses, but we're approachable. We're not assholes that way. At least that's what I'd like to think. Um, yes, we're trying to be kind and approachable podcast. TM. For sure. <laughs> okay, so Joe, why don't you show, uh, why don't you share our, our question for the week, uh, for the month? Uh, we're going with a theory-heavy episode today, so we're going with a pretty toothless question. Um, <laughs> okay, Joe. So, so, oh, okay, Joe. Ask the harder question. You're gonna. You're oh, fine. Fine. Want to it? All right. Uh, what's What's a role-playing game that matters more to you than your religion or faith? Go. Oh, now that that grenade's there. Answer the question, Joe. While I mull this over my cup of coffee. Oh, I mean, literally everyone, but as I said before we went to recording, Albedo, the OG furry game, a game that deserves much more recognition in advance of things like uh, My Little Pony um, taken off, I think was perhaps the most ahead of its time game uh, ever made, and and frankly, one that should be turned into a faith. Wow. You know, I need to find the rules of this game, and why? Because you are so enthralled by it. Yeah, I don't think I've heard. I've heard Joe talk a lot about games at this point, and I think I've heard him talk the most about Albedo. I've yeah. never read Albedo. In fact, I've only heard about Albedo in passing because of Joe. I imagine like no more than two thousand people have read Albedo, and frankly, that's like one thousand nine hundred ninety-nine more than should have. But. Oh. It's $5. Okay, I, I can afford that. Yeah, if you want to spend $5 reading the OG furry game and then perhaps developing a faith around it, I'm not going to say that's a bad use of your time. Um, oh, it's, I'm based say it's, on a, pretty good use of time. it's based on a comic book by Steve Galacci. Am I re- I'll be honest, am I going to regret this? Yes. It's Joe, and Joe just wants to confess to his fetishes in the most public and contrary way possible. Yeah, 100%. Like, Fiona has the right of this. Okay, you know what? You know what, Mahar? Do not let curiosity Don't kill you. Don't persecute Joe, Mahar. You're the most progressive of us. I am not. I am not the most progressive of us. Okay? Just because I'm the only person of color in this podcast, it doesn't follow. Oh my god. 
Oh my effing god! I swear, I swear, I swear, y'all. I swear. Okay, okay. My answer to Joe's question. Uh, you know what? I given that I'm a deeply lapsed Catholic, um, it's actually I actually spend more time on Sundays playing RPGs than going to church. So I would say it would be my current game, which would be um a heavily modified version of Changeling the Dreaming. Huh. You're playing yeah. Changeling right now? Yeah, I'm playing Changeling right now with a small friends. Yeah, using the 20th anniversary rules. You know, Very I mean of cool. course, of course, you know, it's it's I'm reclaiming that game. I'm reclaiming it because I had oh, bad course. memories of that game, but now I'm just kind of like, you know what, there's a way to play this without being disgusting or having to deal with disgusting people. So yeah, I would say Changeling the Dreaming Especially since uh, it came about because we watched the latest Sandman, and that 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 got that itch started. How about you, Jared Fiona? Well, uh, my name's Jared, and it, to be perfectly honest, there's no game that's more important to me than my faith. How could there be? You know, games are just games, but faith is how. It's the only way to come to knowledge, you know, which I'm saying specifically for Joe. <laughs> oh my God. The knowledge of how he wants to by large fox women or whatever. I, I, I can't tell if Joe is suppressing himself with rage or if he's biting down a leather strap in lust right now. I'm somewhere in between and it's causing me to choke. <laughs> Uh, but if I, I had to choose, if I had to choose, um, I'm in a, I'm actually in a, in a fun game right now. I'm in a DCC game locally, which DCC was one of the first games I played when I came back to role playing games, um, which I had only played Pathfinder in college. Um, so it's really cool because I haven't played DCC in a long time. It's fun to play it uh, with some of the people that I played it with originally, um, which is sort of it, it's a nice sort of homecoming for us. Which has its own kind of religious bent, I suppose. Fabulous. And how about you, Fiona? Um, you know, I'll go with the uh, OSR game with the best religion rules, which is Neoclassical Geek Revival. I appreciate that it models real-life religion in that the easiest way to gain this positive standing with your god is to make sure that other religions stop existing. You know, you know, this actually brings in something very OSR-ish, which I was thinking about, and it makes it made sense to me, because in the OSR, you're able to gain levels with GP instead of XP, right? Um, GP is XP in most yeah. systems. GP is XP, right? So whenever you give money to your faith, what you're technically doing is you're giving XP to your religion. And that means whoever is the font of that religion is getting more and more experience, which means that they're actually getting a lot more levels. Speedrunning strats to godhood, typing. <laughs> There's a game called uh, The Nightmares Underneath that has sort of an interesting take on that particular issue, actually. I think that's um, really fun. Wow, that's a, that, yeah. the implications thereof. On that note, this is the group that you're going to you're going to listen to for the next forty five minutes to an hour or so. But what have we been looking at? We've been looking at this wonderful book, Dangerous Games with the Moral Panic over role playing games, says about play religion and imagined worlds. 
by Joseph P. Laycock as uh, published by the University of California Press. So we've been going over this for a while and I just wanted to share friends. This is a bit of a landmark episode because first, I think this is the episode where we've been wanting to talk about this topic the most, like this side of the topic the most. And it's also, Jared, it's our 20th episode. Oh, is it? Yeah, this is episode 20. Could you imagine? We've done, that's almost two years worth of episodes because we only do this once a month. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? We skipped a couple months. We probably, we're right there probably. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, we, with this episode, we'll probably reach 6,000 downloads, which is like, wow, people listen to us. It's probably yeah. me listening to us over and over again because I miss the sound of your voices. But the point is, <laughs> people listen to us. Okay. So, it's yeah. It's still wild that everyone listens to this show. I, 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 find, I find it really strange. real life. I mean, you know, I'm so jealous Fun that you life. and Jared Bear met in real life. I'm not a fan of this podcast. I just appear on it. You're a national fan. Oh, that's true. I didn't mention that to whoever um, uh, whoever it was. I f- I'm sorry I didn't get your name, but who approached me at Necronomicon and mentioned that you were a fan of the show. This is this is a shout out for you. It was very Aww. nice. Meeting you. Yes, you you made Jared's day, and Jared, being our maidenly curmudgeon, is like really seriously. That is a that is a very like rare thing for Jer Bear. Let's get to this because as Joe, <laughs> Joe goaded me into at, making him ask the hard <laughs> anyway. So here we Joe go. Joe wanted to keep more time off the clock where Joe doesn't have to theorize about rituals. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're in part two, chapter six. Uh, how role playing games create meaning and honestly i found this to be the most fascinating part of the book what were your impressions about because we've gone you know the last two books two and a half books one could argue is that we've been looking at quite a lot of history but i would say this section is a section that truly delves into theory like this is when i felt like okay grad school has started let's do this yeah i mean like the first chap or first paragraph to the chapter i think like sums it up really well like the two excerpts you know of fantasy role-playing games have functions in common with religion that moral entrepreneurs have misunderstood and the gamer apologists have historically had to overlook in order to refute the claims of their opponents um and then at the end of it on the one hand it is patient, patently false that games like D are actually a religion or are engaged in some sort of proselytizing on the other hand there is ample evidence that role-playing games do shape how players see the world and themselves and yeah this is the chapter that gets into it right like we've covered that games aren't teaching you magic or making you disassociate from reality but they're doing something and that's fascinating and yeah I mean, I love I love what the chapter posits to do. So this chapter, chapter six, and how um, you know games and, and, and meaningfulness. So this chapter presents a theoretical framework that explains how these games not only allow players to escape, in the sense that Tolkien describes. So Tolkien earlier in the book says that escapism shouldn't be seen as an act of cowardice, but rather the act of someone exiting a prison. 
right? But potentially to return to the world of the prison and repurpose to it, uh, repurpose it. And the keys to this process are imagination and play. And I was just kind of like, wow. Uh, considering that I grew up personally in a, in a, in a culture that I felt was extremely um, binding, it really, it really did, like, yeah, let me escape quite a bit in a good way. Um, I really like this sort of organic parallel right at the front. There's, there's this bit on page 180 where he talks about um, how the, the process of world building and the way we talk about it in games specifically is creating meaning out of chaos, which is itself a religious activity. Um, and then very quickly, just a couple of pages later on 183, he gets into this this issue of anti-structure and sort of, sort of starts unpacking that. And there's some interesting parallels there because what he's talking about is um, anti-structure as liminoid versus instead of liminal. Um, but basically that um, games are anti-structure insofar as they allow you to break apart all of the, the structures you're familiar with and then add stuff to it sort of uncontrolled and then build something new out of all the pieces left there, which is exactly the kind of world building, meaning making religious activity that he was pointing to, you know, just a couple of pages before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that really stuck with me. The other thing about this chapter is that I understand the psychological parts of it, but the religious theory parts of it are very intriguing. And he goes so on so far as to say, like, make this claim that, this this creating order out of chaos that you were saying, Jared, is something that's actually a biological function. Uh, mm. He does have he has some talk of how like the a- animals and humans make sense of the world, and that requires actually some use of the imagination in order to make sense of it. And this uh, this I wanted to focus on this particular um, sentence. So players often struggle to articulate exactly why role playing games are so engrossing and the feeling they have while playing them. If role-playing games utilize the same process that human beings have always used to order the world and construct meaning, then the appeal of these games may be hardwired. Playing them is pleasurable because the ability to create worlds is our birthright as human beings. I think that leads me into like my, my primary takeaway from at least the opening here is that this seems like a, a positive reformation of so much of what has been laid out as the perceived negative of role-playing games mm. up to this point in the book, right? 100%, yeah. So many of these claims are, are functionally identical to the things that have been claimed as the evil of RPGs and just kind of turned on their heads in terms of, like, their valence, right? It's, it's the same thing that, you know, religious fundamentalists have been claiming about, you know, it being heretical to imagine new worlds because it is usurping the creative force of God is just like, oh, okay, but like actually the imaginative function is the thing that is most natural to humanity. Um, You're right in what is occurring. You're wrong in how you're perceiving it. Um, And I think it it sets a really interesting grounding for what's to come. And we'll we'll talk about that more um, in saying basically, hey, they're all right, but they're all wrong in the way they look at it. And he even, that is, Laycock even um, reaffirms that, like, no, you're right to see this as a completely uncontrollable phenomenon, right? There's there's the part, especially in the anti-structure um, 
discussion right there at the start where he very explicitly says this is by its own nature not able to be controlled um, and sort of winks at the previous chapters where that's a huge part of the the actual panic going on is that it can't be controlled well, um, either yeah. from outside or by the participants themselves. Yes, yes. Because like the earlier chapter made made like much of the fact that people were saying that you had dungeon masters, game masters who were effectively playing God. And this chapter posits, but actually we're not playing God, we're playing imagination. And our imaginations are so powerful and so part of us that when we make sense of the world, we are capable of making imaginary worlds in and of, in and of ourselves. So it's like, I find it really, it's almost poetic, really. Like, in every single human being is a world being made, is, is basically the subtext of this. And I'm just mm. kind of like, that, that reaches like, we are all made of stardust Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan levels of like <laughs> meaningfulness. So I'm just kind of like, wow, I felt like reading this book made me feel like we are so much more than these Twitter reading terrible creatures that we are. <laughs> you know, it's like, hmm, how interesting. <laughs> I, I would like yeah. to feel more of this rather than the, you know, the doom, the doom death, doom death scroll discourse of the month, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I I'll feel that's what uh, is really interesting about this chapter, you know, is that he really pushes back on the anti-satanic panic, but like, you know, kind of dismissive claim that gamers make of it's only fun or it's just a distraction or whatever and tries to take it seriously and reconstruct it because I do think that that's, you know, sometimes kind of cringe for lack of a better word. You know, I think, um, man, I felt very seen by the person. It's like, yeah, D&D made me decide to try and be a Thalmite and take psilocybin. And it's like, that's great. That's very, <laughs> that's yeah. very power positive psychology. <laughs> well, um, okay. I'm free of psychology, so I don't have those problems, but you okay. know. But Fiona, I did want to ask you something, because this is where I think the book uh, kind of, I don't want to say conflates. I mean, maybe that's an unfair word to use, but it does talk about the intrinsic inner workings of psychology and theology here. Like, it, And that's why I think I get a little confused. So perhaps maybe as we get in deeper into the chapter, there's this section on models and meaning making. So like, that religion, it says here, entails a dichotomy between the profane, equivalent to Schutz's world of daily life, and the sacred, an alternate order defined by virtue of being separate and distinct from the profane. And Durkheim then continues here, assumed that there was a naturalistic explanation for the sacred. He wrote, nothing comes from nothing. The feelings the physical world evokes in us cannot, by definition, contain anything that transcends this world. From the tangible, we can only make the tangible. We cannot make something unlimited from something limited. So in that, I'm kind of like, this sounds important to me, but can you help me unpack what that actually means when put against RPGs? When you talk about these like sacred and profane um, perspectives of being. 
so like Durkheim's a pretty old like you know theorist and I think technically counts as an anthropologist because religious studies kind of at least in the US starts with William James but right like what a lot of the modernizing religious studies tried to do is not come at it from a theological standpoint that is the goal of religious studies is not to say that like there is or not is not spiritual phenomenon because um even if i could somehow materially and empirically prove that god is or is not real i don't think it would change people's opinions about why they go to churches which i think gets into this right like Durkheim's interested in the setting aside of spaces and times, both as the things that are shunned and the things that are sacred. So, you know, like RPG-wise, right, a good way of putting it is that games tend to have their rituals, right? Like things like do not show up more than 15 minutes late, or we're at least going to just start if you're that late, you know, type things are you know ways that the ritual works but the idea of things like touching someone else's character sheet might be like a way of looking at how right like it's a piece of paper like it's not like i can really affect your character but like the idea of me like reaching over and messing with someone else's character sheet is like a transgression at some tables and you know that's part of what defines the game as a different space is that in most places if i borrowed a piece of paper from you the worst you could say is that that's kind of a dick move i guess um because right like the the sacred profane distinction in terms of like philosophy of religion is that religions are often the function that creates sacred profane spaces right there are the list of things that you are allowed to do and encouraged to do and the list of things that you are forbidden to do and shunned for doing or that are like viewed as then at best unsavory and that's how religion orders meaning does that make sense yeah it does it does i mean i think i'm still on the edges of the idea but i am it's clearer now at least to me like this chapter is packed full of like it's almost like talking about these really ethereal building blocks and then, oh, here's how we do it. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's uh, it is it is very interesting. Joe, yes. were you going to say something? There, go, Joe. I mean, it's just it's. I think you said it before, right? This is this is where the master's class starts. Um, up up to now, you can kind of get through this as sort of just a layperson, and and I think this is why we might be moving a little bit slower from here on out is that in becoming so grounded in theory, we do kind of grind to a halt a little bit here. Um, so just as kind of a heads up to the listener, right? Like if, if you are someone who's reading along or if you are planning on reading this book, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road and don't feel discouraged if we drop some names or some names get dropped on the book that you don't know. Like this is, this is the point where Wikipedia becomes your friend. I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't understand many of these people, and I just don't even know how to pronounce their names. <laughs> like, perfectly honest. I know it's wrong. Like I know it doesn't rhyme with bazinga. Wizinga. <laughs> Wizinga. Yeah. The yeah. 
yeah, I just kind of like, whoa, this is so amazing. I love it, actually. I love it. Okay, I quite love it. So um, here we go. So basically, we have covered a number of things. We've talked about like liminality has been brought up, uh, and mm. then there's going to be a, there's going to be talk about what it means to be liminoid, which for me is also something that I'm still trying to grasp and get my mind like to get to swallow the idea a little bit because I thought I knew what liminal spaces were, but now liminoidal spaces are something else that are put in here. Um, um, and then because basically like Arnold van Gennep, who I'm pretty sure I'm so sorry if I've just crushed this person's name first developed this term to describe tribal initiation rituals in which adolescents emper- entered a temporary phase of betwixt and between of being no longer juveniles and yet adults. And that, that talks about what it means to be liminal. But then later on, it continues on to talk about, and this is where Jared's antistructure comes in, where when we are liminal, social norms and statuses are temporarily dissolved because you don't really fit into one or the other. And thus you have this antistructure which is basically the space in which you cannot be defined or it's very difficult to define you. And as a result, when you enter a game, you are very difficult to define because of your being in the game. That's basically the implication of that statement. So yeah. I, so like, so it's like, so one way of putting it, I guess, to like ground it further, it's where people, it's like, where it shouldn't happen. Like people's genders, for example, don't matter in game. The number of times I've seen a straight cis, you know, dude play a female character without feeling any worry about he's playing a female character is is has happened. In the same way I've seen many like a femme person say, I wanna be, you know, the delightful himbo. And I would imagine it's in spaces like that, which are like, not only are you creating these spaces, but now you're destroying the rules which we're supposed to follow in so-called real life. And so I can just imagine why the panic was fed by this, because what they're seeing was destruction there's, and creation at the same time. There's a very, I think, easy for people who are at least following along with the discourse of, of today, which probably is most of the people who listen to this um, example I can think of uh, for liminal versus liminoid, right? So, so this is an idea that comes from some Turner primarily, um, but has been picked up on by many other people. But the liminal, liminal states revert back to the norm, right? So, so if you think of like the, the discourse around um, Spelljammer and the Dragon game recently, right? Like, we're going to fight about this, and and all available evidence says that we're probably just going to bounce back to the norm, right? All the good work that people like, you know, Daniel Kwan and Asians Represent have done and got us, you know, Candlekeep and things like that, it all gets erased pretty quickly because we revert to the normative state, which is that stuff as edge case um the liminoid is where we actually have the possibility of jumping off to revolutionary change and that's what's actually scary 
yeah to to the status mm. quo i think i think one one thing because as a person who has most of an anthropology degree unfortunately um <laughs> i think i think uh, like a really a really strong illustration of the difference is that we we know liminal stuff really really well actually um as people who live in the world right so we can think about it like a wedding a wedding is a super liminal moment right because before the wedding you're not married right and then <laughs> after the wedding you are and so those are two very stable states and then during the wedding you're kind of neither and so that's why weddings tend to be so extraordinarily structured right they're an event that has rules and, and they're hyper 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 structured because things are so in flux right and it's a way of passing from one state into another in a way that not only you as the person like doing the change but also the people around you that are that are important to you can get their minds around right and i and i don't say that glibly at all that's a it's a very big thing well that's um, the, yeah that's so like, the, yeah i mean the, the thing yeah. about a lemonoid um experience is it kind of it kind of freezes that the actual wedding right it freezes that moment where everything is in flux and it also says it, it because it's not something that is as structured as a wedding in fact in the case of games it's almost not structured at all or it could be right in the case of play say or pure imaginational play there's no structure at all uh, and and also you don't know what's on the other side of it right you you, you don't know that you're going to be married on the other side of it so mm. you can kind of it, it, it has the potential to be this huge revolutionary like thing event on the level of identity well that's i mean you know, right. it's, it's attending it's, attending a wedding is liminal watching a sudden and tumultuous breakup is liminoid yeah because it's the active participation that changes it there is a there's agency being exercised here to make that liminal space continue you know yeah, i really a really common um, distinguishing factor between liminal and liminoid is that liminoid events tend to be um, optional. <laughs> uh, they, they tend to be like uh, voluntary. It's something you choose to do. Yes, um, which, which is which, definitely true in the case of games. Which, which, and the thing is, I mean, like theoretically, right? We choose to play with each other in these games, so yeah. that is why it is a liminoid moment. And and it's, I mean, like when you think about it, RPG games are a game or a liminal moment that people decide to participate in, therefore it becomes liminoid, where at that moment, you are not your character, but what happens to your character affects you. You are, your decisions are your character's decisions, but your character's decisions are not necessarily your decisions. Um, well, I mean, I, I wanna, I wanna- It's so like, many things. Yeah, it's so yeah, many wonderful things. There's, there's a little bit of something I want to push back on that, which is that it's not the option to participate in an RPG that makes it go from liminal to liminoid because there yeah. is optionality in participating in a liminal thing, right? I choose uh, to go to a wedding. That's true. Um, that's true. It yeah, is. It is true. Yeah, but it's there's that. All I meant by that was that that's a very common like rule of thumb yeah. that gets used. Is there's a higher yeah, presence no, of agency yeah. in a liminoid totally. thing. It's a, but I it's would a say push back like, to my thing. I think because I was like yeah. saying that the, the trigger of a liminoid space is the is of making is in participating in a liminal space when a mm, liminal okay. space can just be liminal, even if you decide to participate in the in the liminal space. Exactly, yeah. and, and what yeah. makes. RPG is a threat, but also what makes them such a testament to 
kind of this godlike power among man, right? To to take the 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 and the people who hate it so much and fear it so much their position and flip it on its head is that in choosing to participate in it, we have the revolutionary agency to to essentially shape our moral and creative universes around them, right? Yeah. So I think the the next step, that certainly the next step that Laycock takes is to take this sort of idea of the liminal and the liminoid and specifically attach the word liminoid to games, right? Uh-huh. And then talk about this idea of anti-structure. And that's his way of working backward, I think, into theology, into religion. Yeah. Um, so functionally yeah. what you get is like, okay, so you're in this liminoid space and what it allows you to do is take the universe around you, all the things that you know and are and could be and were, and like break them into symbols uh, separate from each other, right? You can kind of break them down into these building blocks and then you refit them, right? Rearrange them and find uh, new hypothetical modes of being. And that is exactly the kind of action that role-playing play is on the one hand and also like that's exactly the religious function of religion can we just pause for a moment here because right now i'm have i'm crushing deeply on joseph p laycock's brain because <laughs> and this i mean seriously we have literally just had a discussion that has referred has reference to theology anthropology psychology and communication all at once yeah, this is a really sophisticated chapter. He's using a lot of very sort of syncretic things to all scaffold around this huge idea. It's really I mean, it's an impressive it, chapter. Okay, isn't it sexy? I'm just thinking of how much he read. I'm like, oh my god, do you know how much he had to read to get here? Oh, oh, I mean, I'm crushing so much. One thing that he leaves out for the most part that. I will only mention this once, but I I have found very interesting in discussing this with with people outside of this pod is that he's basically laying out the like, at least very abstract fundamental tenets of something like LaVey and Satanism. Mm. Um, But I think he probably makes the very good decision of not framing it in those terms since he is arguing against the satanic panic interpretation of it. I I think he also does a little bit of a wink at it later in the chapter when he does deal uh, directly. Yeah, Yeah, Fiona, you were saying? Um, It's way far ahead. But no, there is a good bit uh, around the end of the chapter where he does talk about how occultism and games do kind of link. It's just that both groups, for various reasons, see the other as embarrassing. Yeah. It's a yeah. very pot kettle black situation, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I grew up Catholic, right? I have a question: Is a mass a liminal or a liminoid space? Liminal. 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 It's too it's structured liminal. to be liminoid. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. too structured it, it, to be liminoid. But you know, at the, there are times when it's like, I don't know. A part of me feels like it is as well because you are, you are kind of entering this point where it's both bread and God. And then you have your confession before it just feels like the whole process itself feels like there's a lot of, you don't know what you're in. Well, it's definitely liminal. And that's, that is a function of liminality, right? Is that if things start to lose their, their grounded meanings, right? They, they become strange. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, but the thing about liminality versus liminoid is that you generally, when you step into a liminal space, you know where you're going to come out, right? So if when, when I when I eat the little biscuit, I know what that means, even if it's strange, right? Okay. Um, whereas a liminoid mean. space. Yeah. yeah, like a mass is liminal, but like a papal council might be liminoid if it like results in something that's actually changes the direction yeah. of the church and the faith. Okay, uh, so going back to the wedding analogy, when someone asks, if anyone objects to this wedding, may they speak now or forever hold their peace, is that a liminoidal moment or a liminal moment? For sure. Uh, or, or like if, if someone gets stood up at the altar, that turns that liminal space into a liminoid yeah. space, perhaps. In, yeah. a, in as much as most people asking that question don't expect anyone to answer, um, is it, it is liminal. If someone answers it and, and does say, I have an objection, it has now suddenly become a liminoid space. Can I just Which say, is why it's so this is so amazing. I quite love it because when I think about games and the number of times as players where we, we wonder what we're going to do, it makes it feel so liminoidal now. Yeah. Oh my, go- yeah. my goodness. I'm sorry. Oh. Liminoid is going to be the next name of my dog. <laughs> um, you know, I do actually, you know, on a book that we've been very complimentary to, I do have a note of sus on page 187 um, for the claim that I like the least in this book of games are amenable to psychoanalysis precisely because they often reflect the player's view of the world in ways that the player himself is unable to express. This function accounts for much of the violence and misogyny prevalent in certain gaming groups. Oh, uh, interesting, yeah. Which then, you know, moves into Clifford Geertz and, like, Balinese cockfighting, um, Bateson, and etc. But I think that it's both an important point and one that gets really glossed quickly because I, I intensely cannot ever bring myself, even for the purposes of charitability, believe that psychoanalysis works. if psychoanalysis has worked for you and you are a listener and your feelings are very hurt i'm sorry and i'm glad that like freud's cocaine fueled visions made you feel better i am and the placebo effect works you know just tell me it's morphine that you're pumping me with and i'll assume that it was morphine it'll work just as well <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I, I get you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not very much deeply into Freud myself, and I do think that there is a little bit. It is, it does smell a little bit. But when it's you also get, when you get there. Kind of necessary for the argument because, to some degree, what makes the game liminoid is that we can't perfectly know what we'll do, and I think that's the one bit where community and the broader table and other things that are harder to talk about without making it more explicitly RPGs are all a micro religion mm-hmm. kind of comes in. Yeah. I well, think that's yeah. a moment where he just takes, like he takes the argument too strong, basically. Like I think what he's trying yeah. to do, cause he does go back to this idea of like reflection a couple of times. And I think yeah, what he's trying to do is establish that, first step of the liminoid where you have the full symbolic structure of your world available to you and then the liminoid process breaks it apart i think he's trying to like really hammer that in and i just don't think it's necessary you know on some level that like 
there is, and I don't think that it necessarily, I don't know if it means as much as people want it to, you know, but like there is a persistent thing of like, yes, on some level, like slapstick humor about violence or casualness towards it and various forms of cruelty and also frequently misogyny are, you know, a game thing. But also, I don't know if they reflect the inner world of people, or I don't know if it always does, but I do think it's something that's worth delving on, right? Yeah. I mean, this first part, what this whole, this first part of what makes games basically meaningful, this, and it's just basically the introduction to the chapter, and we've been talking mostly about mechanisms so far. We actually haven't talked about application. And that's where he goes on to this next part. So this long, this these last 20 minutes have really just been us talk about the mechanisms in which, like, theoretically, this is how RPGs work and have in common with religious mechanisms. And then we go on to the next part where, we, where I think it becomes even more. And I think, um, yeah, this is where Fiona's, like, Balinese uh, cockfighting metaphors come in. Well, his meta use of it, his his use of that as a way to substantiate his warrant. Um, fantasy worlds and the world of daily life. So, this is where it's like I think things get even hedgier, because now he's trying to say, okay, this is how playing a game will necessarily interact with your perceptions of real life. So much so that he goes on to say that. He quotes Gertz here somewhat and basically says that fantasy and reality, when you play a game, it's a two-way street. Um, yes, like in other words, to quote, the world can only be apprehended only through models and models make further analysis an inherent possibility. The two functions cannot be separate, uh, cannot be separated rather, applied to role-playing games. This means that the relationship between fantasy and reality is necessarily a two-way street. When they look into the mirror of fantasy, gamers can either affirm and reinforce their assumptions or call them into question. So what does that then mean for us in terms of our gaming life? That's what's interesting about games, right? Like both, I mean, I think there's maybe been an overcorrection, right? Like your character isn't you. Or if your character is you, I think there's problems that are beyond what, like, gaming theory is supposed to help, and I suggest therapy. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think that games have this intrinsic quality that, you know, is like cockfighting on, especially Geertz's thing, of, like, it's not considered socially, like, the most desirable thing. Um, I don't think anyone's you know, parents are like, man, when my child grows up, they're going to be a role player. Um, now maybe more so, but who knows? Um, they also are a metaphor in which we see all sorts of things, you know, like they create, I mean, we did a ton of episodes on basically the language of the forge which is a whole language that people to some degree use that is entirely related to like analysis of games from the aughts and also the sorts of games that were around you know they're metaphors for a world that existed on some level 
Mm-hmm. The Forge is a religion. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Let- you see, every day I think we're getting closer and closer to starting a riot. I don't know when it's going to actually happen. <laughs> every day I feel closer to being a god myself. Well, okay, here's the thing, though. I think it's in this part where I do agree with Fiona. Because he, uh, this is where Laycock, I think, and I disagree. Because Laycock will, he uses a few number, a few, few like psychological examples to say that basically at the end of the day, when you play your character, you are playing a part of you that already exists. So basically when you're performing and, and acting as character, you're basically revealing a facet of yourself. I've always disagreed with this because I've always seen um, the notion of play as something inherently improvisational. And you can use improv and feed the material of improv through externality. Like, for example, when he brings in this notion of um, a character named Fred, a person named Fred who was playing someone who was lawful evil, uh, it talked about how basically he was playing evil because Fred was using the game to construct a model of his own feelings, and then he was able to, like, talk through his feelings and act through his feelings to said character. But that's an instance where I think it feels kind of cherry-picked because you know of so many players who are not evil but have seen evil and then simply want to, to engage in a darker narrative. It doesn't necessarily mean that this person is evil. And I think that's, that's kind of where a lot of the tension of games comes from which is that if you perform or have the performative like indicators of what evil is, you must be evil because you understand it so much. You know what I mean? And that, that has yeah. always been like a very like, huh, kind of uh, thing for me. I think there's a softer claim in here um, that maybe Laycock isn't, like maybe he's going a little too hard on it. But I think there's a softer claim in here that like when you sit down and especially in the world building sense of role playing games. And I don't mean like only, I don't only mean when you sit down with a giant notebook and write like, you know, there's three sons and the world's a donut, but like in the, in the sort of grand world building sense on the, in the moment to moment, you, you, you are working with out of necessity, only the things that you have available to you in your life. Right. And the things that you know, and the things that the things that you are, but also the things that you are not. Right. And I think that's, sort of where this gets muddy is because he keeps using that mirror metaphor. And I don't necessarily think, you know, like when you look in a mirror, you see yourself, but you also see everything else. So I think it's important that we're not, it's not strictly reducible to identity here. So you, you're able to pull in say evil and cruel and whatever things. And in the liminoid space of the game, you can engage with them and you can engage with them specifically in a way that can produce some kind of outcome for you and for your world potentially, or at least give you some kind of new perspective on you and on your world. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become that or incorporate that evil thing into yourself. Um, And I think that's, I don't know. There's just, I, I suspect that it's just something lost in the metaphor that he's going back to. Well, I think it's even, and you know, because in, being kind, we should exhibit the same critical tendencies at all times. I think what this chapter suffers from is the lack of case studies for him to really draw on, so Mm -hmm. he can only make 
you know, in terms of how academic writing and publishing works, you know, there's a couple of case studies and there's like interviews with like fine and a few people, you know, the confessions of a DM bit. And, you know, there's a bit where someone that identifies as an energy worker and a ninja is cited you know, because they ran some sort of occult practice where, like, they want people to play D&D to increase their mind power. Mm. And I think that's kind of what both strengthens the point of there is something there, you know, like, it is uncovering something or doing something to your imagination. And it might just be so uncontrolled that people can all say their own part of the elephant when they look at it, but... I think more than anything, there's just a lack of real data to work with. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a good point because I think he's actually most clear about it in his best case study, which is the magicians toward the end of the chapter. There's a moment where he says, um, this is on page 201 as a liminoid state play creates a space in which the possibility of magic can be reassessed. Right. So that's that's the like overarching power of this liminoid space that he's trying to point to, I think. And it's and it's you notice how many like steps there are to that. Right. So play is the thing that creates the space so that we can imagine a possibility and then reassess the possibility. Right. So we're we're like taking our world and reassessing it and then looking at the new thing and then deciding if the new thing is a thing that could exist or should exist or that we want or that we don't which is a very, that's a much softer set of claims than I think the way it's painted just a few pages earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the 194 summary is really good, and I get that he works through things, you know, but, like, role-playing games are fun exactly because the decisions one's character makes have consequences. If characters are violent and cruel, they will be hunted by authorities. Outraged communities will retaliate, and so on. This suggests that violent fantasies and role-playing games are a tool for analyzing violence and its consequences and not necessarily a rehearsal for actual violence. And I think, you know, that's the point I want to nail up. And, you know, same page, someone's follow-up quote, um, Barrowcliff saying, it wasn't really D&D that caused us to behave so vilely to each other, but masculinity itself, which just felt very honest. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's very interesting. He goes so far as to, like, again, re-quoting Gertz to say that the interesting thing about religion was that going back to what Jared was saying where, you know, I'm doing this in-game, it makes me assess things from this liminoid space, and I go back into the real world, quote-unquote. I don't know what the opposite of liminoid is, what, what the non-liminoid space is, is called. Um you ask yourself, well, why can't the world be like what I just saw in the liminoid space? And religion is able to do that because it actively shapes the real world, even as it's liminoid liminal, right? It, it, it influences things. And so perhaps that's another place where the nervousness of, um, the nervousness of, of conservative people were with regards to... Um, to games, maybe there was a subconscious recognition of, oh, what we're doing affects the real world. So this this game, which which at some part we recognize looks like our religion, 
or in other parts looks like our religion is going to do that same thing to the real world. And so it does kind of look into the emotional logic of it, though I'm not, I don't think he's making a claim that, and that's why it's understandable that people would panic. And, um, and I don't think he celebrates people panicking either. He does give some credence to that sort of thinking though, right? When he, when he cites Barber saying that a model is a continuing source of plausible hypotheses and then goes on to talk about how D&D's rules become a vocabulary of the possible and thus do have like an emergent effect on the sense of the real for the yes. player. Yeah, for sure. I don't think uh, Laycock is ever saying that there was nothing to worry about. Uh, yeah. for, for the no. for the religious people, merely that mm-hmm. they were worried about like a competitor. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, sure. it's like it's almost like oh no, they do what we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, outside of our purview, right? Yes, yes, but and also because I don't. Th- but that said, and I, this is my own reading to it, I don't think the people criticizing games were fully conscious of the fact that their own religion operates that way. I don't think they thought, oh, you know, what we're doing is all like, you know, it's it's all good. And so I don't think they ever thought that they were actually like engaged in a way with handling reality through their religion. Yeah. Actually, there's a really good, the, the, the last sentence of the section that ends on page 206 is, I think, an excellent uh, indicator of exactly the distinction he's drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, the sentence is, Role-playing games are not sociologically significant because they inculcate a player with a particular worldview, but because they can expand the player's worldview in radical and unpredictable ways, right? So it's this, it's not that it's funneling children into worshiping demons, right? Which it's actually the inverse of that. It's that they're providing children with a huge set, an unprecedented set of things, that they could be and happen and do, which I think is an interesting distinction. Yeah, I mean, like this, we've, you know, and just uh, being cognizant of our time because we still have our rules for this podcast, which is episodes will not be longer than, (laughs) than, than most of the time than one hour. And we're almost at the one hour mark. And I do think that um, it's hard to do just personally. I think it's hard to do justice to this, to this chapter without, unpacking so many things he does like laycock does pack a lot of disparate seemingly disparate theory and unifies it quite well in this chapter i don't agree with it 100 percent, but i do yeah, think I mean, it's very well constructed i don't think that necessarily we're done with this chapter after this episode i'll leave that up to y'all but like there we've we've gotten through for people who have not read the book I don't know, less than 50% of the actual content of that I think is worth mentioning in the chapter, yeah. Yeah, there's just so much to say, which which arguably yeah. makes it... I mean, there's so much to say that you have to think about. You don't have to automatically agree with it, but I do think you need to think about it before you say, I agree with this, I don't agree with this. Yeah, and I, I think, as a, I haven't quite finished the book, but I think this is the, really the chapter where the book lives. Um, yeah, you I, could... You could extract this chapter yeah, and be like, "This is this is the reading." One hundred percent. This like is if, the if chapter. I were this book 
to a college class, I would probably yeah. just pull out chapter six. This is the chapter that got the grant. This is the chapter that got the pitch. <laughs> you know, this is the chapter that justifies your 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 school's JSTOR slash Muse subscriptions. <laughs> I, I do not miss using JSTOR and Muse. Uh, you know, I actually miss having JSTOR and Muse. I do miss it. I don't miss. I I, I miss having access. I don't miss using them. Let me be very clear. <laughs> I'm very sad that my college figured yeah. out that they hadn't removed my professor credentials. I, I started having access to those in seventh grade, and when I finished school, I was very sad. I didn't realize how much I would miss them just because of how long I had them, and uh, it's it's devastating to be without them sometimes. You know, there I are times when... stuff on a bunch of laptops right before my JSTOR thing ended. Yeah. <laughs> No, seriously, like this chapter alone has over, well over 80 citations. And it's, and it's, and these are like actual. Yeah, they're mostly full theory books where, but even though he's extracting a term, he is really summarizing that he did the reading. Like that is a know, lot of detail about Geertz on yeah. A piece where mostly people say, I assume that if you have taken a grad student class, someone has referenced Clifford Geertz's piece on Balinese <laughs> cognitiving. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know what Clifford Geertz says about metaphors and sports and low culture. Yeah. But also how it is incredibly important sociologically. I mean, but seriously, though, there's now I feel like I need to read Clifford Geertz. Because of this, because he's referenced multiple times. The essay itself, I think, is multiple is is referred to in six different citations. It's referred to a lot it's referred in to a like lot. humanities. Like I, I think if like at a certain point if you are ever questioning, do I want to get a humanities degree? I think it's one of the more fun essays that you'll probably have to read more than once. Yeah. It's it's way up well, yeah, yeah. But I didn't have to read it as a theater major for one thing, so I'm just kind of like, oh gosh, <laughs> it's this is this is this is, is something else. Fun theory, though, like you know, you get like Augusto Bawal, you get like Can we a not lot go, of. Do we have? I think we're, you're you, ugh, you're you're, let's, you're going. Let's only drop the names that actually get dropped in this book, so we don't just end up dropping names for a straight hour one episode. Can you imagine? We should do that at each other for a very yeah. long time. You know what? We should, have you ever seen? I forget this play, which has a which ha, which is it's one of those experimental plays. I forget. It's, it's, I wish I wrote this. I forget who wrote this. But there was one scene where you had four academics debating with with each other by simply saying the name of the person they were citing, <laughs> and I was just like, "This is both so messed up and amazing." Excellent. I love it. The Vienna Circle used to do a thing of, you know, they had like a very polite logic base because they're a logical positivist movement, um, etc. Like group, but where to prevent anyone from making metaphysical claims, if someone said something rooted in metaphysics, you could scream metaphysics and throw a red card essentially to just stop them in their tracks because you're not allowed to make metaphysical claims because we're logical positivists and everything must be reducible to a truth function. Excellent. 
You can't see me holding up my middle fingers at Positivist right now, but but I am. I like that Wittgenstein spent his meeting with them screaming psalms at the wall because Wittgenstein's the best boy. Fiona, boy. that sounds like a religion. Logic is a religion. Have you not, like, machine cultists are like a group I'm fascinated with. Also AI singularity cultists. <laughs> Do you think we could do it as, um, you know, at the start of next episode, we'll ask each other, like, hey, what's something you wanted to cover from the, like, we can all come prepared with yeah, something yeah, we want to cover. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, we get one, yeah. one or two young bits and then move on. Because, yeah, and then hopefully yeah. sort of launch in the next yeah. bit, because I do think there's continuity into the next two chapters. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah because I want to talk about, like, magical gamers. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And like, you know, inter- interpretive drift. Oh, God, interpretive drift. All right, well, then, you know, hey, listener, next episode, we're going to start with, uh, you know, one or two things per person that we found yeah. particularly exciting about this. But uh, if you uh, if you want to read this book and you feel like jumping straight to chapter six, I'm not going to say it's uh, it's not the meat and potatoes because it is. Uh, yeah, I think I think we need to have like... TLDR previously in chapter six. <laughs> yeah, Joseph Laycock has a blog. Oh, interesting. Ooh. Oh, have, have, we stopped, have, have we stopped recording, by the way? No, no. Because speaking of social media, everyone should follow us on Twitter at Kind Trying and interact with you. Yes, yes, we don't have mailbag today, do we? Um, nope, no one's sent any questions. So. No, I think I think whoever I think we scared off people after after I basically just rolled my eyes at at because um, <laughs> I just can't I can't refute her theory anymore. I just can't. We'll get more. Who we'll thought that you'd be the scary one, Mahar? I am not nope. scary. My God, all of these things you're all projecting on me. You're Jared saying <laughs> I'm scary. One off, you said. You said it. Yeah, I'm just pretty sure I, that's, that's out of the horse's mouth in this just one. Just because I scared someone doesn't mean I'm default scared. The scary one. <laughs> it just happened once.